0: I went to the bookstore to get my books and walked into the anthropology section and felt completely overwhelmed with a desire to read every book on the shelf. I started crying in the bookstore. So that was kind of my moment. Wow. This is an (laughs) amazing story. Like this is is like a podcast headline kind of story. I know. (laughs) I just, I fell in love. I fell in love with anthropology.
1: Welcome to the Talking Anthropology podcast. I'm Shema Kabolo. Very excited to have Dr. Angela Gloros on the podcast. Thank you. Dr. Gloris is an associate professor of anthropology and women's gender and sexuality studies at Eastern Illinois University. She completed her anthropology PhD at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2011 with her dissertation research on aesthetics, authority, and gender in Sicilian music. Since dissertation fieldwork, she has also been conducting research in different churches in East Central Illinois. And I believe she's also a musical apprentice and has been chanting in their services. So welcome, Dr. Gloros. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're an anthropologist who does ethnomusicological research. Can we start by this term, what it means, and a quick overview of your research?
0: Sure. Uh, yeah, I am formally trained in anthropology, so my degree is in the from the anthropology department at uh, the University of Illinois. But one of my committee members is on the ethnomusicology faculty and is someone who named my dissertation as an ethnomusicology dissertation. So I feel like I can make this claim too. ethnomusicology really defines itself as the anthropology of music. But in terms of disciplinary boundaries, ethnomusicology departments tend to be located in schools of music. And so people getting graduate degrees in ethnomusicology tend to have a number of music-specific hoops to jump through. So for example, their prelim exams are somewhat different from the ones that I did in my department. I had A number of subject-related questions that different faculty members prepared for me and that I had to answer, one of which was on ethnomusicology, but I also had one on the anthropology of Greece, which was my geographic region, gender, religion, that kind of thing. In ethnomusicology, they have a few... more musically oriented steps to go through. So you have to be prepared really to have those musical skills of, of transcription, of sight reading. It's, it's a lot. Um, and so I was advised not to try and switch into the ethnomusicology department when I kind of refined my research direction. I was, I was explicitly advised, stay in anthropology so you can get done don't don't try to switch into ethnomusicology you'll have a whole bunch of more work to do you'll have you'll have additional burdens to take on so you can you can still be an ethnomusicologist through anthropology and there are a number of people who've done that steven feld is a very well known name who is both absolutely an anthropologist, anthropologist, but also an ethnomusicologist, ethnomusicologist. So my goal would be, you know, to follow in his footsteps.
2: To me, that's amazing. I've read some parts of your work, and it really made me think about participant observation, because in your case, participating means something that you really like bodily word for you, right?
0: Yeah. And I would say in terms of methodology, the way participant observation looks in ethnomusicology is very performative. They do talk a lot about apprenticeship because for many people, and it, and it really depends on the musical tradition. If there's a tradition of sort of, you know, musical masters, like for example, you know, some of the Indian musicians who would, you would, you know, or the Pakistani musicians who you, you would use words to describe them like pandit, you know or Ustar, like they have, they're, they're recognized as a master, then you have, it's almost like a, a form of discipleship where they take on students and then they kind of work under them. And that would be the way that you would learn, how do you play this music correctly? What does it mean to people? So that's a little bit more of an explicit process and methodology for ethnomusicologists. Many anthropologists do do some kind of apprenticeship, but it, it really depends on you know the topic of the research i had a good friend who was doing art and stone sculpture and so he was hoping to apprentice under some sculptors he ended up going in a different direction but but it's more it's more explicitly formulated i think in ethnomusicology that hey if you if you really want to understand this music you should be trying to learn how to perform it because there are certain things you won't you may not be told in an interview because people don't always just articulate them in an abstract way but if they're teaching you and they hear you do something wrong they'll be able to say oh no that's not how we sing that or you know that's not the vocal technique it's much easier for them to show you when you're in that kind of practical teaching mode than if you are simply interviewing someone it, it just doesn't always come out it's a really effective way of learning of course that presumes that they think of their musical traditions as something that can be explicitly taught to others and That was the issue I confronted when I was doing my dissertation, that on the island of Skiros, certain categories of music were seen as something teachable, something anybody could learn. But the one that was really more precious to them and closer to their hearts, they didn't see that way. They didn't see outsiders as categorically able to learn it. This was something for people who lived on the island, who belonged to the community. And even those people had to really grow up and live it. I mean, they explicitly told me this. Well, our songs can't be learned. They can't be taught. They have to be lived, which was pretty disheartening to hear when I (laughs) tried to write a dissertation. Yeah, Um, I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I learned a lot about what kind of knowledge music is. What sort of what form of knowledge does music constitute? And it's very personal. And in this case, it was it was very intimate and it was really tied up with belonging. So I couldn't necessarily enter into any kind of formal apprenticeship with this form of music. I could listen to people talk about what they knew about it, talk about how they learned the music. And I could try to replicate what I heard them doing from listening to them sing or listening to recordings. But there was an understanding that that was not, that was not the same thing. It wasn't the same thing. And they admitted that their own pathway to learning that musical form of knowledge had been disrupted because of changes in their lives. So singers told me, my own children don't know these songs because we don't hold the feasts in people's homes where you would learn these songs that are called table songs. So if you don't have the table how can you learn the songs? So I began to see that you know it isn't just that I'm an outsider and incapable of learning it. Something has been disrupted in the traditional process of of passing down this knowledge which is going to affect the way that future generations learn the music. It doesn't mean it will go away but it will change.
1: This is such a creative project. I was wondering how did you Cross paths with it? How did you cross paths with anthropology in the first place? I think would be a great well, way to start.
0: It started, <laughs> I'm so old. It started in the 1980s when I was an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota. And I took an introductory anthropology class and I went to the bookstore to get my books and walked into the anthropology section and felt completely overwhelmed with a desire to read every book on the shelf, I started crying in the bookstore. So that was kind of my moment. Wow. This is an <laughs> yeah, amazing no, story. Like, this it is, is like a podcast I,
2: headline kind of story. <laughs> I know.
0: I just, I fell in love. I fell in love with anthropology. I didn't necessarily, I didn't end up majoring in anthropology, but I did take several courses and I did an honors research thesis based on research I had done on Greek dance in a summer study abroad program. So I'd gone to Greece in the summer of 1988 and attended some dance conferences, visited some folk dance theaters, interviewed their directors and that kind of thing to try to understand something about the meaning of of Greek dance. And so that ended up being my honors thesis. And my thesis advisor was someone who taught in the English department but he was very steeped in the whole postmodern turn that was going on in the in the early and mid1980s and because he was an English professor he was really interested in writing and representation so without having an anthropology major I immediately started cutting my teeth on Clifford and Marcus's writing culture jumped right in on that. Uh, And so when you read, you read my undergraduate thesis, you see these references to this literature that we now see as as marking kind of a historic point in anthropology without having been steeped in the older classics that they were critiquing. So it was a little bit of a strange way to get into it. Um, But so that was that was really the start is I was. At the time I was involved, as a Greek American, I was involved in folk dance groups in my community in Minneapolis where I was living. Uh, So I really came at it from the standpoint of a community member who felt pulled between two worlds, being a Greek American who had traveled to Greece, knew my relatives back there, understood to a certain extent what people were trying to do in the Greek American diaspora with preserving and transmitting parts of their culture. I also had a long-standing interest in trying to figure out at what point can you claim a particular identity as a performer? Does it have to be given? Can you just assert it? That's been a lifelong, you know, search for me. So all of those things were in my mind and also the role of gender in all of that. What's at stake for women in performing some of these traditions? And so I was framing all of that in terms of dance, folk dance. And my master's thesis at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, focused on a Greek-American dance troupe in Milwaukee and their issues of identity and belonging. And my conclusion was really that there was something quintessentially Greek-American about the way in which they perform these dances and something quintessentially American about performing a variety of, let's say, European white ethnicities at places like folk dance festivals, that 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 was one way of being a certain kind of American. Um, So as Greek as it made them, it also was a very American thing to do. Uh, particularly in a city like milwaukee which is known for its ethnic festivals so it had been this long you know history of being interested in dance anthropology basically and that's what i started out doing when i came to the university of illinois and then while on an extended break after my son was born i eventually switched gears and decided to focus on vocal music instead and keep the focus on gender, but just switch, switch topics slightly from dance to music. And part of that was from some of the insights I had gained while performing in the University of Illinois Balkan Music Ensemble, which was really transformative because it just gave me an opportunity to get more experience as a vocalist, singing songs that I had danced to for years but now kind of taking a different role. It ended up being really, really useful because while Skirians do have, you know, a great and robust dance tradition, what they're really known for is this vocal music, this, this acapella vocal music. So almost by accident, I switched my focus. I had spent only one weekend on the island in 1993. I was visiting Greece and uh, my relatives, who live on the island of Evia, which is sort of next door to Skiros, took me on a trip there for the weekend. And so that was really the first time I encountered the island. And I immediately thought, well, when I do my PhD research, I want to come here. And that was before I really understood their immense tradition of vocal music. I knew about carnival, which is a big deal on that island. And I'd been thinking about something related to dance and carnival rituals. And it was almost by accident that I switched and did vocal music. I didn't really understand just how unique that vocal tradition was on Skiros until I got there.
2: You talked about when is it okay to call yourself a true performer. I don't know. Was there a switch between performer and anthropologist for you? During your fieldwork, or was it like a coexisting identity?
0: Well, that's one of the things that ethnomusicology helped me with a lot, is being able to claim both, that performing is a path to knowledge, you know, and and that's, that's m- more legitimate of a process for ethnomusicologists than, than it always is for anthropologists. I can remember going to the American Anthropological Association meetings. You know, early on when I was still doing dance, and I'd go to dance sessions, and that was a moment when you'd see people jump off the platform and demonstrate a step. So they were giving a conference paper, but they would have to dance it for you. So you could see those kind of moments at dance sessions, but otherwise you really didn't see them. Then the first time I went to an ethnomusicology meeting, and I realized, oh, everybody does this. (laughs) You know, they're they're going to have to break through into performance, as Richard Bellman would say. Because that's, it's a field note in a way, you know, they learn this song, they're going to be singing it to you. That's, it's, it's in a way, one of the more pure ways to demonstrate what they've learned. And I always found that interesting. I remember, oh, I struggled so much with sort of feeling intellectually prepared to, let's say, write my prelim exams, to write those essays. And I can remember journaling about this and thinking, it's so easy to tell if someone knows what they're doing musically. Either they know the song or they don't. They're going to open their mouth and they're going to sing it. Either they know the words, they know the tune or they don't. How do I know when I'm doing that theoretically? How do I know, am I citing enough literature? It's just not the same. So that was a constant struggle for me is always feeling intellectually <laughs> underqualified, underprepared, and musically feeling very qualified and very prepared. And so it took me a while before I could kind of reconcile those things. And for me, ethnomusicology helped me do that because it didn't say, oh, yeah, that singing is cute. But let's get back to the real work, which is writing these abstract sentences and citing people. It's like I can make musical citations. <laughs> if I sing you in the style of a famous singer, I'm citing the singer. That's a citation, you know? Yeah,
2: I'm going on a tangent here. But the fact that you said performance is a path to knowledge, it sounded very religious (laughs) to me as a Muslim woman as well.
0: You know? Yes. uh, No, that's an important insight. And I would say that 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 has really come through with my current research. And so some of that is, I don't know, I guess you'd say theologically informed. The the Eastern Orthodox Church is very different from Western Christianity. They just, they have a different theological orientation that can be hard to explain. When you look at it on paper, the differences seem to fade away. But when you look at culturally what people do and what religious practice looks like, we have much more in common with other religions from the East, including Islam much more in common and it centers on bodily practice. It centers on this category of performance, which sometimes in the West people construct as if it's fake, or inauthentic. When I talk about performance in a religious context, I don't ever mean that. I'm talking about putting faith into action, and I'm sure that that has probably informed some of my theorizing, or at least made it easier for me to to grasp and latch onto some of the theories that have sprung up, you know, since the late '80s about about embodiment. And dynamic embodiment. They've always seemed very intuitive to me because that's how I've always thought of life because of, you know, that's, that's, that's the training. So this was also a thing that was hard to reconcile in the academy because some of my professors early on in my PhD program really didn't want to hear about that part of me and and saw it as an intellectual failing. That way well, you can't both be, and it was it was specifically for Christianity. If I had been a member of another religion, they would have made more room for that. But it was, basically the idea that Western white people should have set Christianity aside by this point, if you want to be intellectually smart. It's like, yeah, that's, that's too simplistic for me. You know, I'm, I'm no crusader, but I am who I am, you know, and, and this, this community that I belong to has informed some of the research questions that I've had. And certainly inform some of the questions I've had about gender, because that's not always a comfortable thing to talk about in, in religious communities. Women often find their roles constrained in these communities, and yet they persist. So where is the power, for example, in women's voices in, you know, the Orthodox Church. That's an enduring question I have. Um, and they're questions worth asking. And I think an early professor of mine found that to be a very, a very uncomfortable position for me to take. I think she saw it as an intellectual weakness of mine because it suggests that I was not detached enough from my subject. But we've already been through that whole critique of objectivity. That's what all of that writing culture and all of the the postmodern turn was supposed to be about, that there's something to learn from my positionality, and I can still have a critical distance toward it. And I remember thinking, my church community thinks I'm, you know, this commie feminist, because I'm asking these critical questions. And then (laughs) my department thinks I'm some kind of Conservative evangelical Christian, none of that is me. None of that is me.
2: I, I think um, we so can, relatable. Yes,
0: relate yeah. to that, like, so hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you know, I keep confronting these questions because I regularly teach anthropology of religion. And so one of the first things we tackle is belief versus practice. And that's a theoretical question. And it's also kind of a sectarian question too. It's like, if you really want to understand religion, you might want to stop framing it as belief because that's a very abstract mental idea and look at practice. And if you look at practice, what does that allow you to see? And it's actually very liberating. It is not constraining, but you have to become less afraid of religion in general in order to do that that seems to take a while. So, <laughs> it, it does. And I mean, there, there are good reasons to be afraid of religion because people use it and misuse it for so many things and they, and they politicize it. People have done a lot of really bad things in the name of religion, but it's still worthwhile to ask, what are all these people doing when they do this, when they engage in these practices? What does it mean to them? It's still, it's still important as, as important as asking, you know, any other kind of ethnographic question. And how do they use sound to construct meaning in that world?
1: Yeah, this is so beautiful. I think this would be a good transition to your experience as an anthropologist in Greece. And Mm -hmm. if you can provide us a little bit of background, both your personal experience, like how you explained yourself to your interlocutors, Mm -hmm. uh, but also the history of anthropology
0: uh, in that region as well. Yeah, that's, I very seldom referred to myself as an anthropologist with people in Greece, just because cultural anthropology, as American anthropologists understand it, is so recent. Anthropology for them, even though it is a Greek word, Let's just get that right out in the open. (laughs) It is a Greek word, but it had this specific meaning of basically physical anthropology, biological anthropology. And Greece is a place where, you know, this sort of this Boasian American ideal of the four subfields, they didn't have that united under one umbrella. Archaeology is firmly rooted in classics, which makes sense for Greece, where Oh, you're going to build a metro system. Well, here's Plato's cave. Now we have to put a museum in the metro station, which they do have in Athens. You know, so that's kind of it's, it's always been off on its own. There was physical anthropology and then linguistics tended to be classics again. I mean, they were just so burdened, as, you know, my friend Michael Hertzfeld would say they've been so burdened with that ancient Greek burden that they can't really get out from under it. So culture was in the realm of folklore, what they call laographia in, in Greece. Mostly, I just talked about what I wanted to study. I didn't necessarily identify myself so much by field. And in in Skiros, most people connected me to their local folklorist, Aliki Lambru, who's a wonderful person who herself um, wrote a really great volume on Skirian songs that has four CDs. Um, It's one of two really big volumes, kind of musicological uh, collections of, of Skirian songs. So she would be someone who you would identify as a laografos, as a folklorist. Just by my association with her, I think I was kind of in that camp. They knew what I was doing. They just didn't necessarily know what disciplinary umbrella I did it under. So if I said, you know, I'm interested in learning about these songs, they would first say to me, well, have you talked to Waliki? Yes, I've talked to Waliki. Okay, then I'll talk to you. I think, I think I was kind of seen as a folklorist by association. That said... Social and cultural anthropology does exist now in Greek academia. So I had a local research affiliation on a different island on Mytilene, where they have a branch of the University of the Aegean that has that has a department of social anthropology and history. So I gave a research workshop there and I was kind of affiliated with them. Among, you know, younger people and university students, there's this growing understanding of what anthropology is, what ethnomusicology is, how these things fit in and how they might differ from, from folklore, you know, as sister disciplines, but with different, a little bit different focus. Um, so that's growing. But for, you know, people who aren't in the academy, who aren't necessarily aware of those differences... I didn't really identify myself by discipline. I mean, if someone asked me, I would I would explain, but that usually didn't come up. Mostly we just talked about, you know, the music.
1: Was it any different in the United States? Because you also conducted research here as well.
0: Well... In the community where I ended up doing most of the research for this current project at the church here in Champaign, Three Hierarchs Greek Orthodox Church, they, their patron saints are the patron saints of higher education. And this is a thing that Greek American churches will do. Oftentimes, they'll sort of take the patron saint that sort of relates to where they're located. So it's a university town. They have the ministry to the college students. It makes sense that they chose these saints that are famous as academics. And so there's a lot of university connected people in the church. So, and they, they knew me for a long time. They knew me while I was getting my degree. So for me to say I'm an ethnomusicologist, they, they have some understanding of what that is. So it was fine to talk about that. And I think mainly for them, a lot of them didn't really understand I was doing research until after the fact, because what they saw was the practitioner side of it. Because I had been involved to one extent or another with church music since I arrived. I was either singing with the choir or I was doing a little bit of chanting informally. So, I mean, they knew that I had that role. And then all they really saw was at a certain point, Angela started taking this really seriously and showing up every Sunday and learning how to do this. And she did it with her son and, you know, it became kind of a thing that she took on. Um, So that's what they saw first, the, the practice end of it. The most recent little piece that I published in Anthropology News that did get that did kind of make its way around the church. And I was nervous about what they would have to say about that, but the reactions were were very positive. Thank you so much.
1: I also have a personal question. You mentioned that you were a mother when you were going through the undergrad, mm-hmm. uh, going through the graduate school. Mm-hmm. This is also something we have been thinking about. So if you have any insight about what that process looks like, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would relate to that as well.
0: Yeah, it's, <laughs> I was just rereading a conference paper I gave in 2017 about taking children to the field. <laughs> I was just rereading that and thinking, wow, <laughs> oh, it brought back a lot of memories. Yeah, it was It was very unexpected. This wasn't something I'd been planning and I'm a single mother. So it it really kind of came up and slapped me in the face. <laughs> I would say, I mean, one of the things that it did for me is really, and I think it's true of anybody who becomes a parent or does any other you know major life change it clarifies you know your priorities i changed advisors in the process because the first one really saw it as a failing saw it as as evidence that i was intellectually inferior there were notes written in my student file from this person that indicated that there was just there was just this it, it was very it was very obvious that that making the decision to go ahead with the pregnancy was, oh my God. was a sign of intellectual inferiority. And so that's, you know, that's kind of, that relates to, you know, people's own kind of, you know, what, what did you think the sacrifices were that you had to make to become an intellectual? Clearly, diff- you know, different women have different paths. It just really shows you the stakes for women in academia. It doesn't matter whether they're married. It doesn't matter whether they're single. They're more than for men. No one ever asks men, you know, how are you managing, you know, fatherhood and field work? No one ever asks. They don't ask. So it was really it was really challenging and it clarified a number of things for me. But as I wrote early on in in the little piece that was in anthropology news that I wrote with some colleagues of mine, we were all single grad moms together, it's it's another path toward authority and it can be threatening to academia because well you can't be under their thumb, you're somebody's mom. You're somebody's mom. You have a certain amount of authority. You can't, you know, I'm not never, not to mention the fact that I was in my 40s, you know, by the time I finished my PhD. I was 35 when I got pregnant. It's like, I'm a grown woman, (laughs) you know, I'm not 16. The decisions I'm making are lots of women who hit 35 would say, well, you know, I don't have that many fertile years left. This is a decision I need to make. So this happened. So I chose, I chose to go forward with it because that was, it was something that mattered to me, you know. But yeah, you know, it did it it caused me to hit a few bumps. I did leave my program for a couple of years, about two and a half years, moved in with my parents back in Minnesota, took a corporate job, just a, you know, an administrative assistant job, which deserved to be its own field work because it was fascinating. But I didn't have an IRB, so I couldn't I can't publish everything about that corporate anthropology experiment I was doing. It was fascinating. But, you know, just working, raising a little kid and then preparing for what you could call a comeback. And it was incredibly challenging to, you know, try to manage daycare and finish the few classes I had to take with, you know, a little two-year-old. <laughs> I love to tell my son this when I, when I want to make him appreciate what I've been through. When we came back for the year that I was finishing coursework and he was in daycare, about two days out of the week, I would put him to sleep. I would kind of fall asleep with him about 8 p.m. I'd wake up at midnight for the day, work for seven hours, writing papers. And then he'd get up at 7 a.m. And I'd get him ready, take him to daycare. And then I would start my day <laughs> and go to my classes. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that probably shaved a few years off my life. I did I did that about twice a week for, you know, nine months for, a, for an academic year. It was a lot, you know, but there were things that I had to do that somebody who didn't have a child and no money because they're a grad student had to do. So this was, there were, there were extra burdens that, you know, I had to do. And then after that year, daycare broke me, moved back to St. Paul, my committee allowed me to commute, basically to take my prelim exams, just sit and write my written ones and then take the oral. And so that was, you know, and I couldn't have done it if I hadn't had my parents, you know, helping with childcare and that kind of thing. So it was, you know, it was a little bit of an interrupted process, but I definitely noticed the comeback was very strong. I had a completely different sense of self, plus a new advisor, a new research focus. So that helped too. A research advisor who understood what motherhood was about, who was the only faculty member who said congratulations to me when she learned of my pregnancy, instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry.
2: This is appalling, really. Yeah. So... I cannot believe this.
0: Yeah. So yeah. The first reaction was, oh, I'm so sorry, how did this happen? How do babies happen? it's wow sure i'm not married but like it's a normal thing you should know how this happens so yeah choosing a new advisor and going in a different direction and and going where I felt supported was ultimately a really <laughs> a really important thing you know a big power movement all i know is that all of these struggles and all of these burdens when i came back even with a little kid i had straight a's and a pluses in that last year of coursework and I was learning a new language. I had a Turkish fellowship. I was learning Turkish. We should have done the podcast in Turkish. <laughs> <laughs> it's been kidding. a while. It's it's <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while. But I had struggled in my previous, you know, in in the first few years of my grad program, I would often be taking incompletes, not finishing papers on time, really struggling. And motherhood clarifies that. My kid's asleep for seven hours. These are the seven hours I'll be working. That's it. You know, it's not easy, but there's no doubt. This is the time in which you have to work. You're going to get it out. And you know what? Professors just told me, oh, this paper was brilliant. I loved it. You wrote it so well. You know, and I just thought, no, I had to. <laughs> I had to. Um, no more time. So it was amazing how, how clarifying that could be. Um, And the same was true of dissertation writing, you know, with a, with a, you know, an elementary school age child, both before and after I got hired in a faculty position, I was finishing up my dissertation. Here are the days on which you can write. You're not going to have writer's block. You don't have time to have writer's block. (laughs) You're going to squeeze it out. And, uh, you know, so personally, it was very empowering, institutionally, very disempowering. It was clear that I was definitely swimming upstream. A lot of people were not supportive. Some people were, but many were not, and that's something that my my fellow grad students who were also going through the same thing would agree with me on. That the system isn't created with us in mind. Um, there are a lot of obstacles that have been put in our path, and it's in a way it's silly because many of our interlocutors, you know, have to work and manage kids it's it's a really normal thing in most of the world that you you work and you juggle the kids and you get it all done. And it's it just normal. But somehow, academia, because it has these monastic origins, somehow, well, first of all, women, but especially women who are mothers, are seen as a taint rather than just a normal part of the fabric of learning and knowledge. And so, uh, we constantly came up against that in in a variety of ways. So, it's it's it it should be it should be <laughs> it should be different by this point. This shouldn't still be going on, but it 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 is it is because academia tends to be extremely conservative and changes very slowly and gives a lot of lip service to a lot of liberatory things but you see it in practice whether or not they you know schedule meetings when you don't have any childcare whether they insist that you come in to a meeting in person that could have been an email a Zoom call whatever you know what obstacles do they throw in your path you know it's clear they don't have you in mind the whole system yeah. was not created with you in mind
1: Yeah, I think, you know, what you said about authority and academia is like, it's really helpful to think about like why it still continues as well. You have more authority now as a mother, but also you mentioned, you know, the relationship between religion in the academic sphere. They Mm -hmm. also don't accept that kind of authority as well. So thinking them together is also very interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, and and just the idea that people can be more than one thing, that you could be a church member, but you could still be a perfectly legitimate critical thinker. Maybe I'm constantly thinking critically because... I'm a woman in a hierarchical male-dominated religion that still manages to find some joy in it that maybe I'm constantly critically thinking and and maybe you're overlooking something I have to offer. But it's it's a lesson that anthropologists in particular need to learn because if you can't accept that your graduate students might be complex individuals, you're probably doing the same thing to your interlocutors, which is really insulting actually to think that, Oh, they're members of this religion, so they must just be these, these, these sad automatons who are just under the thumb. It's like, I don't think generations of women would, would do that. There's, there's more going on. It's, there's a lot more tension, and maybe that whole system is actually built on the tension, the gendered tension. And maybe that's what actually makes the system work. And maybe it's actually a really exciting and energizing tension and not just always oppression every time you look at religion. I'm not saying there isn't oppression. There is oppression. But to speak of it as if it's always at all times in all places, this one thing, this monolith, means that we're not doing good anthropology. We're not doing good anthropology if we don't leave room for people's agency.
2: Amen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I really appreciate what you've shared about your graduate story. I think it, it helps... For all of us, for women students especially, who feel out of place by the systemic violence of academia, so yeah, yeah, and and while listening to, you, I think it's also a great segue to my next question. Is in this podcast we really celebrate works in progresses because, like, the grad student experience is until you write that dissertation, <laughs> you are not celebrated, and you are. <laughs> it is a mind game, really, mm-hmm. and. Me and Shema talk all all the time about this. Sometimes unfinished projects add value to your overall experience in in numerous ways. So what I would like to ask you is like, are there any works in progress that you would like to share or like unfinished projects that you dropped and you would like to give a shout out to them?
0: Yeah, so many, (laughs) so many. One of the biggest ones that actually does continue to nourish me is a summer project I did in the summer of 2001. Our department at the University of Illinois had gotten a five-year NSF methodology training grant. So they would send students to the field for the summer, basically just to work on ethnographic methods, and you'd be paired with you know, your advisor. And because most people had chosen advisors based on geographic location they were going to an area where they were probably going to do field working. My advisor at the time I chose her for theoretical reasons both of my my first advisor and my second advisor they the first one was a linguistic anthropologist who worked with Native Americans the second one is an Africanist a West Africanist so neither one was chosen for geographic area but what that meant was that I went with my first advisor, To Montana and spent a couple of months on several Native American reservations. And I was studying, and this was still when I was doing dance and movement. And so I was I was looking at kind of the relationship between powwow dancing and sundance ceremonies. Because they're different, but they have a number of similarities in the way they use space, the way they kind of the circle is a dominant theme. And so I spent the summer driving around Montana in a in a Chrysler Fifth Avenue, big, you know, it's a big car and going to powwows, learning a little bit about powwow dancing, and then attending Sundance ceremonies. And I never published anything on it. I gave a conference presentation sort of coming back, you know, within my department. I never published anything on it. And I feed off of that all the time. I am able to talk about the things I experienced in my undergrad classes. So when I give my lecture on music, I include powwow music and I talk about the symbolism of the circle and how that's a cosmological concept that you're dancing in a circle, but you also understand yourself related to all other beings, you know, on a horizontal plane. They use the phrase, um, the Plains Indians use the phrase mitakuya oyasin," in all my relations, meaning that I'm not in a hierarchical relationship to other beings. I'm in a horizontal and circular relationship to other beings. So I feed on that all the time, even though after two months of research, I didn't feel I was qualified to publish anything on it. I'm still friends with some people that I met in the field. I'm, you know, we're on Facebook together, you know, and that was, it's, it's been 21 years since I've been there it continues to feed me having, having, you know, taken part in the Sundance ceremonies. There are some things that I discovered about kind of ritual symbolism that are very meaningful, even though I was not allowed to record or take notes. Even it's just, I can still hear the songs. I can still sing them to myself. I don't sing them to anybody cause I'm not supposed to, but it still feeds me. So that's like, that's a really great example. That was a life changing experience. It was a completely positive experience, but it doesn't look like it on paper anywhere. It's not. There's no product. You know, I was the recipient of a grant. You can see that in my CV, but there's no other, you know, there's, there's no other documentation. And yet I teach based on that every semester. I introduce students to powwow. I explain to them what I think is exciting about powwow music and Native American, you know, vocal music and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, that's, it's not even a work in progress. It's just, it's, it's a work that already happened and it just kind of, it became part of me and, you know, I I don't, I'm not an expert. I'm not a native Americanist, but it's, it's something I take with me and it's, I was there. I can, I feel I can talk about this one thing, you know, I feel kind of, well, if any native American elders were in the room, I would shut my mouth. I would just say, please. (laughs) You shouldn't let me talk, but I feel like I can at least be a bridge to some of that knowledge for my students. So that that to me is maybe my best example. I was cleaning out some files a couple of years ago and came across all of my notes from that summer. And it was so exciting. It was so exciting to reread them and think about these things again. But it's so alive to me. It's it's as alive to me as my dissertation fieldwork. And it was, you know, even longer ago. And it's just it's so alive to me.
2: I love that uh, your quote-unquote work in progress has no documentation because this yeah. is <laughs> our premise is like talking about it should is a part of this process and it should be recognized as part of this process uh, yeah. more, I it's, think.
0: Writing, writing is so permanent. Talking is so ephemeral. And yet there was a time, I dare say it was ancient Greece, when rhetoric was the higher art and writing was the lower art. We switched that up and it's, I know my son wishes it were the other way. He's like me. He can expound on whatever topic he's studying in school. He can just expound on it. And I say to him, why don't you go write that down and turn that in? Oh, it's hard. <laughs> writing is just, it's painful for some of us. So yeah. So because I get to teach these subjects, I get to talk about them. And it's, it's very clear. I always know exactly what I want to say. Putting it in and writing is, it's painful in a way that just, and I think maybe it is because there's the sense of permanence and my sense of what this means is evolving. So I can talk about it. Next time I talk about it, it might be a little different, but if I have to put it down in words, I have to commit to that in a way that I am just not prepared to do. Yeah. And, and yet our careers hang on the things we write and the things that we publish. I mean, it's really, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. And we have so many opportunities now, especially with the advent of, of things like podcasting that there are ways that a conversation could last a lot longer. We could go back and revisit it. It could have meaning for people, but we don't always value it the same way. And visual anthropologists will tell you this too, the relative weight given to published writing versus making a film you know, or a video. Writing is the privileged medium, and there's we should a, challenge it. Yeah. Do you think there's
1: a gendered component to this as well?
0: <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Oh, yes, of course there is. Of course there is. I just talked about this. I was teaching ethnography this semester. And so I, I, I did the lecture in class where I talked about how, okay, writing culture was this this really kind of seminal volume that, you know, really sort of represented this postmodern turn. And then when the editors of Women Writing Culture produced their book, they were like, hi, guys, we've been doing that kind of writing for decades remember zora neale hurston remember you know all of these names we've already been doing that and you're acting like you invented it there was only one woman included in that writing culture volume mary louise pratt and then all of these other just you know generations of women anthropologists oh yeah for sure for sure writing in you know experimental styles we've been doing that for a long time. Zora Neale Hurston is really good at that. But when women do it, well, that's just intellectually, you know, weak, but it's, it's exciting and groundbreaking if men do it. So, you know, it gets really tiring. (laughs) It gets really exhausting. And I keep hoping that with future generations, it will change. And I think to some degree, things are better than they used to be, but it's still, it's still way more of a struggle than it should be way more of a struggle.
2: Yeah, we should look out, Shema. I think that might happen with podcasting as well. <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't think oh. we are over it yet. <laughs> the the way that that men in the podcast sphere posture and yeah, that's a whole other conversation. The podcast bros, it's 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 too much. But the I podcasts like- I like are mostly. <laughs> driven by by women, by people of color, by queer people that have a little bit different perspective and have a different approach to a conversation.
2: Yeah, we should have you back uh, as a guest just to talk about that maybe really.
0: <laughs> that would be a wonderful like, oh. conversation. <laughs> yes, yes, it's just it, it never ends. It it never ends. I don't know. I see a lot of hope, though. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm raising a boy who is 19 and I I see him and I see his outlook and I'm like, maybe Gen Z is going to be okay. Some of the things when I tell him things that I've experienced in my life, he just thinks, well, that's unacceptable. That's horrible. I'm sorry that happened to you. And I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry that happened to me, too. (laughs) I didn't realize it till I said it out loud how horrible that was, you know, just the sort of routine sexual harassment and routine, you know, misogyny that I, you know, would laugh at it and he says, "Well, that's horrible." You know, you're right. It is. So, I feel good I'm putting, you know, someone good out there but it's still he's living in a in a in a dominant culture that rewards and makes more space for him and his thoughts and his words than it ever has. Even though, okay, as a white woman who's now middle-aged, not middle class, I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> I can use more money is what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, You know, I, my voice also takes up more space than other people's voices. And I, you know, I'm, I'm aware of that, but, but his culture allows his voice even more space, yet more space. So, but, you know, it's nice to see that at least he's, he's aware of that. He's cognizant that, and he is careful to try to be inclusive. So at at least something's moving.
1: Would you advise him to be an anthropologist?
0: (laughs) Oh no. I mean, he I don't know. He's he's a musician, so he's already he's already planning on a future without money. But <laughs> I don't know. He's he's a very practical guy. If anybody can make money on it, he can. He's a composer, he's a musician, he loves ethnomusicology. He was in a class I forget what class it was. He was just telling me a couple of weeks ago where they were brainstorming possible ethnographic projects. And he says, I can't believe some of these things these people were proposing. They were talking about surveys. He goes, that's not ethnography. And I thought, I've never loved you more than right now. <laughs> he goes, ethnography is about immersing yourself in a culture. I'm like, is that because I dragged you on my field work when you were five? Is that <laughs> is that why this happened? <laughs> he's been a part of it <laughs> he has he hasn't bless him he still wants to go back to skiros i really want to go back to greece I thought, you should you should we should both go back this is
2: amazing as bad that it is in this podcast that i want to go back to your writing slash talking routine you've mentioned that your talking anthropology routine is kind of teaching i wonder if there is an addition to that you want to make and you mentioned about your writing mo- routine during your grad school with your son, but then how yeah. it changed. Could you give us an insight about that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, am extremely, <laughs> I am an extremely undisciplined writer. <laughs> I don't have a writing routine. I'm terrible. The closest thing I come to a writing routine involves personal journaling. I don't know if you've heard of the book The Artist's Way. It's an interesting book. It was the woman who wrote it, Julia Cameron. She kind of combined the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 steps with sort of trying to create like a creative recovery for people who are creative but who are blocked. So wow. she has this sort of 12 step thing. And I don't follow all parts of her book because I'm, you know, allergic to people telling me rules. Which is ironic for someone who's Greek Orthodox. You don't like people telling you rules? Why are you in that church? That's another conversation. But one of the two principles that that she suggests people who are trying to recover their creativity engage in and one is to write morning pages. The idea is to kind of clear out your brain first thing in the morning. And then the other one is to take yourself on a weekly artist date where you do something creative to kind of free up your spirit. So the morning pages is something that I have been committed to for years and years and years. I started doing them in 2004. I don't do them every morning, but whenever possible, I do. That's that's the biggest writing resource. Routine I have. And that's mostly personal, thinking about my emotions. But sometimes, if I'm working on a project, I'll end up journaling a little bit about that. That's the most disciplined writing I do. The rest of the time, I'm just dashing after deadlines and just trying to keep up. So, I'll tell you how last week went. I had a deadline, I was writing a book review for the Journal for Modern Greek Studies. It was also Orthodox Holy Week and I had 20 services to chant at. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah Wow, Plus, wow. Well, I took some days <laughs> off of work. So I didn't I teach on a Tuesday Thursday schedule. So I taught my Tuesday classes and I did not teach on Thursday. I gave them all a the day off because I knew I had three services that day. There was no way I could drive an hour each way to my university to teach. Somehow I managed to write this book review. In the midst of doing all that, we, we don't know how. Um, I wish I could say that I was extremely disciplined. I wish I could say that I, you know, got up daily and had this sacred writing time first thing in the morning. It's my fantasy, but it's been increasingly harder to make happen. I do like to write in the morning. It is my preference. When I was doing dissertation writing, back when I thought I had a lot to do, I didn't know yet. I didn't understand. Before I had a faculty position when I had just, you know, days off when my kid was in school and I was just, all I had to do was write, you know, and I would write for several hours at a time. What a luxury. What a luxury. And now if I I can get a half hour to outline something at a time, that's about all I get. And then I try to do that and then let it percolate in my brain. Occasionally, and here's where we get into the writing talking thing, occasionally I have... I have recorded voice memos while driving to work and then listening back to them can be helpful because it is much easier for me to talk about something and get to the point than to write it out. So oftentimes I'll do that and then take dictation, you know, just type up my thoughts. And then often something comes to me. My dissertation advisor, the one I finished with, she was fond of telling me, you know, you don't have writer's block. You just write. I thought, are you kidding me? Like, okay, She just said, just it looks effortless when you write. I think, no, like I think about it and think about it and think about it. By the time I put it on paper, I've ordered my thoughts. But the process before that was quite painful to get to that process. So I would say I'm a very undisciplined writer, but any way that I can sort of prompt my internal thoughts, it will be running as a track in the back of my mind. And And then when I do come to sit down, I find it does flow. But that doesn't mean I didn't have writer's block. I had thinker's block. There are some people who think by writing. I don't think well by writing. I think by talking or just thinking. And then I have to work it all out before I can really commit to putting it down on paper.
2: Yeah, I can really relate to that. I think I have a very similar, not
1: routine, but process. Do you want to go into the speed round?
2: Ooh, speed.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: okay, so this segment is called Small Talk, where we get to be a little bit annoying with your consent, of course, and humanize the anthropologist with a lighthearted speed round. So are you ready?
0: <laughs> I am ready.
2: Okay, so do you have any pet peeves specific to the uh, academic sphere?
0: My biggest pet peeve as a professor is something I was just talking um, to my students about this last week. Um, It comes up a lot when either in the religion class I teach, or if they're writing a paper about a religious service, this happens a lot for students where they'll say, well, I decided to go to a Catholic church because I was raised Christian. So I thought I'd try a Catholic church. And I keep telling them Catholics are Christians. That's, that's my biggest pet peeve is they just, they don't understand that like certain branches of Christians look down on Catholics And probably my people too for being too ritualistic, right? So that's kind of it's a Protestant issue, and I keep trying to tell them, don't take the Emic categories and then apply them as if they're abstract analytic categories. You have to have this is where you do need some critical distance, you know. And they just it's a hard concept for them. Some of them it's the first time they ever heard that Catholics are Christians. And I'm like, okay, let's give a little history here. Do I have to take you back to 1054? Like you just you don't so that's my that's my biggest pet peeve honestly we <laughs> are really surprised yeah peeve. yeah
2: i think our religious background informs us that like you know christians three main sects da, da 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 you know like
0: yeah yeah okay all next all
2: yeah <laughs>
0: that's interesting so do you believe in astrology um i have i have used and followed astrology for a long time I reject the use of the verb belief because just like I would say, I, you know, I wouldn't okay. say I believe in science. I have read astrological things for years and I have kind of, you know, followed them. I I tend to think astrologically. So if my son says something, I say, oh, you're such a Capricorn, things like that. But, you know, I don't I don't always build my life around it. What's your sign? Scorpio.
1: Oh, OK. My favorite, I'm a Pisces.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. We're water friends. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I love that
2: I'm a Cancer. so.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's just an all water sign podcast. Perfect. Good energy
2: here. That's right. (laughs) Talking or writing, which one is harder?
0: Writing. Clearly, writing. Yeah. (laughs) Writing, painful. (laughs) So do you have a cherished object? I have several, but one of my most cherished objects... I'm probably going to start crying if I talk about it. It's a little note that my grandfather wrote. Let's see. How old would it be? He died when I was 14. So I don't know when he wrote it. Maybe I was 11 or 12. It's just on some, you know, just cheap note, note paper and just his kind of, you know, messy handwriting. And it says, you know, Merry Christmas, Angela. Love you lot. And he spelled lot wrong because, you know, a Greek writing in English. Um, grandpa and I actually laminated it and I carried it in my planner so that's one of my cherished objects I love that because he he and I had a very close relationship and I was his little girl so that's so beautiful beautiful. Yeah. yeah
2: may he rest in peace so are you a morning person or a
0: night owl I am a morning person I would love nothing more than To keep waking up at like 5 or 5.30, do my yoga and get started on the day. When I don't wake up that early, I feel like a failure. So that's how I know I am by default a morning person. I am surrounded by night owls. My son, well, I think he's a morning person pretending to be a night owl because he's a college student and hasn't figured out how to get work done except at 2 in the morning. Um, But I'm definitely a morning person. Yeah, definitely a morning person.
2: Yeah, sounds accurate. Um, so what would you do if you weren't an anthropologist slash ethnomusicologist? Oh,
0: I don't even know. I, I don't even know. I looked at this question and thought about it. And I, I truly don't know. I know what I was doing before I, I went back to grad school and I was working in, you know, secretarial positions, kind of administrative assistant positions. And I honestly don't know what I would do. I've often thought about that. What would I have done if I hadn't found this, this, the one faculty job that was available probably in the entire state of Illinois when I needed it. And it was available because somebody died, honestly, like jobs were tough to come by. But I, I pulled off a miracle and just because of being in the right place at the right time, found a faculty job where I could commute. I didn't have to uproot my family. That was a job in the field with which I was trained. I don't know what I would do. I literally don't know. Um, but I don't think I'd be having very much fun. Yeah. So
2: is there a TV show or a movie or an ethnography that you love to hate?
0: <sighs> That's a hard one. Um,
2: that I love to hate. We could go give you a pass if you have like a guilty pleasure or something.
0: <laughs> I mean, that I love to hate. I mean, there was, there was a book, there was an ethnography, well, an alleged ethnography, I guess it was an ethnography that was written by a sociologist that I reviewed a few years ago that I wanted to love. And I ended up hating it, not because he, I thought he did a bad job, but I think either the publisher or his committee gave him some terrible advice, and I feel like it was the kind of things a sociologist might do, but an anthropologist would never do. It was such a rich topic and he had left the juiciest parts in footnotes like the stories that an anthropologist would put front and center into the main text were in like end notes at the end of a chapter and to me that was so it was so odd and i tried to write a very a very courteous review i tried not to rake him over the coals because i realized He might not have had control over that decision. That might've been something his committee kind of made him do. And the publisher just went with it, you know, but I was, I was offended on behalf of ethnographers everywhere. I just thought, where is the thick description? You literally hid all the good stuff. You hid it like the stories, the quotes, the juicy gossip. That's what anthropology is supposed to be. And you put it all in the end notes. And I just, I was disgusted, but I'm trying to be careful. I'm not mentioning, I'm not mentioning his, you know, name or the, even the subject of the book. So that's the closest thing I've come to saying, you know, love to hate. I'm sure there are some classics out there that I would, that any of us, if we read them, we'd find wanting, but that's the closest thing I can come to something that I love to hate. I just want to rewrite it for him is what I want to
1: do. Yeah, there are like some <laughs> ethnographies where there are like
0: no people. So common so common why just in the name of sort of being theoretical it's all theories
1: usually and men write those so
0: <laughs> why why do they do that why do they do that they do it a lot and then I if think- you don't do that then you are theoretically underinformed. yeah i'm not saying there are never any women who write in that way But yeah, I've had to be really careful of the kind of books I've tried to assign in my undergraduate classes, because occasionally they seemed like really good books. And when I reread them, I thought, try to read this like an undergraduate. You can't make heads or tails of this. You need something that is that has the stories that puts the stories forward. And it's okay if they have theory, but if they put the stories forward, it'll be it'll be it'll be better. So, yeah. I mean it's an important lesson. It's one reason I'm glad I'm teaching because sometimes it helps me remember you got to communicate. <laughs> it's different when you write for your dissertation committee and when you write for another audience. It's completely different.
2: Yeah. I think I think it's a great advice. And it's also our last question. So, what would be a tiny but useful advice for people who would like to become anthropologists?
0: Become independently wealthy? <laughs> This is the greatest advice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or or, you know, maybe maybe consider consider something outside of academia. Just academia, you know, and I it's it's silly for me to say that. I'm speaking from a position of privilege. I did manage to get a tenure track faculty position in the field in which I was trained. I did receive tenure, you know, so I should be I should be sitting, you know, pretty and I, I still love, you know, anthropology. And so I'm, I'm not trying to gatekeep. I, people should do it. But, you know, if you're going to go to grad school, see if, see if you can get fully funded while you do that. Is there a way in which you can get fully funded? You, you shouldn't be trying to get into an academic field that's where, where jobs are few and far between and start already behind. Don't accumulate over $100,000 of student loan debt like I did. Don't do that if you, if you can avoid it. And consider positions outside of academia. Some departments will encourage you to do that. A lot of them won't. Mine certainly didn't because it was, it was set up with an academic model in mind. Some of my colleagues who said from the beginning, I'm planning on a non-academic career, were also treated as if they were intellectually inferior. Instead of just saying, this training is worthwhile, even if you don't become a scholar, per se, it's still worthwhile. You still have something intellectually to offer. And if anthropology only has value in the scholarly sphere, I mean, what are we saying about our interlocutors who may or may not be scholars? I mean, what are we saying? It's snobbery. So I guess my advice would be, yeah, f- f- find a way to make money and, and, and try to preserve your sense of self and, and, you know, try to avoid the toxic people if you can you know, and have a support network, especially among the fellow students. One of the things that, that I and some of my fellow students did, which some of our faculty looked at us like we were seditious almost, was we created a writing group. And we would we would meet around my dining room table because I happen to have a big dining room table and we would workshop each other's papers. And we had started as a joke, calling each other doctor just in the course of the writing meeting, just as a way to sort of practice, and get used to hearing it. We didn't do it outside of the the group, but in during our sessions, we would say, oh, Dr. Glaros, you know, and get used to saying it. And I can remember faculty coming up to us and going, I hear you have a writing group. Yeah. Shouldn't shouldn't we be? But because we weren't, you know, it, it was something that we were sharing and doing amongst ourselves and we weren't under someone's supervision, it was seen as very, you know, sketchy and really and really something kind of looked at askance. And so, but the support networks are important. You have to you have to create them for yourself. The The department won't necessarily do that for you. So yeah, find find some financial support and some moral support.
2: Calling each other doctor is such a powerful
0: manifestation method i just want to point that out it is fake it till you make it that's how we felt about it it transformed the way we thought about ourselves we kind of took away that that mystical power of the word doctor it's like well i'm gonna model going to model trying to, to be this let's just be collegial and pretend we already have our PhDs and oh well Dr. Glaros your you know workshop paper is very interesting and uh I might suggest you know why don't you revise your introduction and just kind of you know sort of a performative model of let's let's practice doing what we plan on doing in the future so it shouldn't have been revolutionary but it was yeah
1: yeah, and it's like something so normal now with the writing groups. I feel like everyone is yes. like telling me to like I have a million writing groups. Yes, I, at this point, it's too much for me.
0: Yeah, no, I mean it. It should be just a normal thing that you know everybody kind of you, you get a little peer review, and it and it should be normal. But I think I think what it does is it sort of cross cuts that that patron client relationship that you see so much in academia, where somebody's an advisee of so and so. But my advisor, the the advisor I finished with, she kind of modeled that for us because she would have a group advising session. She didn't have time for one-on-one. She was a working mother. Hello. So she, she would have all of her advisees at whatever stage meet in her office once a week. And we would trade whatever we were working on. Somebody was doing a dissertation chapter. Somebody was doing a grant. Somebody was updating their CV. And we would all workshop each other's stuff, which meant that we would have you know, classmates, fellow students, we were both writing applications for the same grant and we'd have to workshop each other's grant applications. We were technically competing against each other, but we still had to help each other. So that is kind of revolutionary. So she was really cross-cutting that whole um, competitiveness, that competition for scarce resources. we're like, well, one resource that isn't scarce is mutual aid, really. And so um, she modeled that for us and that was that was tremendously helpful. And so yeah, I think that's that's something that could help a person, regardless of whether they wanted an academic career or a non-academic career, is to try to try whenever possible to kind of cross cut those those hierarchies.
1: Yeah. Especially like in the pandemic now, it's so hard to have students support each other, having mm-hmm. that kind of network. I I'm sure like you were also helping students who are like in later stages than you so you would have known what's coming for you in in, in 2 years 3
0: years exactly exactly and that is that that was valuable it it was great to see this this you know, dissertation writing process, which can feel so personal and so secretive. Well, I'm writing in this cave and then I show it to my committee members and they shoot me down and say terrible things or, you know, whatever. But, you know, ideally you'd be publishing this eventually. So more people should see it. Why not start to bring that in in the beginning? But again, if, if that hadn't been modeled for me as a student, if, if at least one professor hadn't thought that that was a good way to work, I wouldn't have been exposed to it, you know. Um, And I do think that, you know, whenever possible to create those horizontal supports is a good way to do, you know, whatever field you're in. But certainly for anthropologists where, you know, we're talking about society and community, that's that's supposed to be what we study. And it's like, why don't we create it? It's not just for the field, it should be for the halls of academia too.
2: (laughs) This has been a great, conversation. Thank you very much,
0: Dr. Claros. Thank you. I've enjoyed myself thoroughly.
2: I mean, we gleaned a lot of inspiration and information from it. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it very much. Your narration skills are so impeccable, I should say, <laughs> on record. I appreciate like, hearing that.
0: Sometimes I feel like I just open my mouth and just blah, blah, blah.
2: No, we love that. I mean, it's, oh, thank it's why we thank are you. having this podcast to just have that space for us hopefully it's a safe space for everyone who's on the podcast so thank you very much for becoming part of this cute ederim <laughs> <laughs> rica, ederiz. rica ederiz. Biz teşekkür ederiz. <laughs>